Welcome to the Record of Our Forebears podcast. I'm your host, Roland Godette III, and with me, as always, is my wonderful wife, Summer Godette. On Record of Our Forebears, we discuss the stories of some of the dopest black folks that you may or may not have heard of. So grab a pen and some paper and get ready to learn something new. this episode, we're going to bring you two more people. Um, we're going to bring you Harriet Jacobs and... And William Steele. All right. So before we get into Harriet Jacobs, <laughs> I just want to kind of go over um, just some general history about American slavery. Mm-hmm. So the way that uh, slavery worked in America, chattel slavery, mm-hmm. was that if a mother was enslaved, the status was passed on to her children. Um, this was called the principle of partis sequitur ventrum, which is just Latin, and that means that which is born follows the womb. Um, the reason I bring this up is because Harriet Jacobs has some uh, some interesting history with her family and that principle specifically. Mm-hmm. But um, that was different than other types of slavery, like slavery other places in the world. Um, Normally, the status of the father was transferred to the children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in 1662 in Virginia, they changed that in America, and that kind of spread all over the New World. Okay. So, um, so Harriet Jacobs was born in 1813 in Edenton, North Carolina. Uh, her mother's name was Delilah Hornablow, and they were enslaved by the Hornablow family. So, going back to that principle, because her mother was a slave— she was a slave, her and her brother John. They were slaves because their mother Delilah was born a, or was a slave. However, because of that very principle, they actually should have been born free because Harriet Jacobs' grandmother was free mm. when she gave birth to Delilah. Mm-hmm. However, she got kidnapped. Wow. And there was no legal recourse for her to regain her freedom. Mm. She got kidnapped and re- re-enslaved. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, she had no legal recourse and her family continued in slavery. So mm-hmm. it was like they almost got free. They almost mm-hmm. got away, like mm-hmm. the, their, their family, but just a terrible, terrible situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Harriet Jacobs uh, and Harriet and her brother John, their father's name, uh, their father's name was Elijah Knox. And Elijah Knox enjoyed a lot of privileges um, that slaves, he was an enslaved man, but he had some privileges that a lot of enslaved people didn't have at the time because he was such an expert carpenter mm. that nothing in the city of Edenton got built unless John, or unless Elijah Knox, um, unless he inspected it. Mm. That's how good of a carpenter he was. Okay. And so he was just like, he had some privileges. There was a, there was a story that she wrote in her book that uh, when John was a young man, he called for John and the mistress called for John at the same time. And John, uh, Harry's brother, didn't know what to do. So he went to the mistress first and his dad stepped in between him and said, I'm your father. You come to me first mm. in front of the, the mistress of the house and everything. Like nobody said anything to him because that's that was a type of privilege that uh, <laughs> that Elijah <laughs> knocked okay. at. Like, at sir, you do realize you're enslaved, right? Well, hey, look. Hey, look, Elijah Knox, <laughs> I guess he was a different kind of dude. Yes. Um, 
So Harriet Jacobs' mother died when she was about six years old, and her father died when she was about 13. Mm. Um, right around the time uh, that her mother died, when she was about six, she actually was uh, taught to read and write by the daughter of her enslaver. Mm. At the age of 12, Harriet Jacobs was willed, so she was given up, her rights were given up to a three-year-old. Mm. Wow. Which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But she was will, uh, willed to a three-year-old. So the three-year-old's father, Dr. James Norcom, became her de facto master. Obviously, okay. a three-year-old can't be, you know. Of course. You're not going to be in charge of, you know, a grown, you know, a 12-year-old mm-hmm. or any other grown people. So the rest of her family ended up being auctioned off about a year later. So... An, I'm going to take another break here from Harriet, and I'm going to tell the story of Harriet's uh, grandmother, Molly, because her story at the auction block, I feel like, deserves a mention here. Okay. So when Molly, the, Molly was the one, like I said, her grandmother who was uh, re-enslaved, she got kidnapped and re-enslaved. While she was in slavery, she became kind of famous in their community because she was a good baker. Mm-hmm. She asked her uh, enslaver, she said, hey, after all the work is done, do you mind if I use the kitchen? You know, to just bake some pastries and things like that to be able to sell and, you know, keep the money for myself. Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, uh, see, there was a certain percentage she had to pay back to the, you know, to the enslaver and the family. However, they allowed her to to use the kitchen. And so she became really well known and well respected in the community because of this. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody knew who she was. They called her auntie. Like she just was just well respected woman, you know, even as a slave Mm -hmm. in this community. And. Her mistress said that once she died, she would free her. She okay. would free her on her, on her uh, upon her death. She would be emancipated. Okay. However, when she died, the the master of the house was gonna sell her because mm-hmm. you know he wanted to get the money, mm-hmm. and so he was like, "Hey, uh, he came to her, said, hey, Molly, you know." I don't want to sell you at the auction block, so I'm just going to do a private sale. Mm. But Molly recognized his hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. She was like, no, if you sell me, you're going to do it in public. <laughs> you're going to do it at the auction block because she knew that everybody in the community knew mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about the will that she was supposed to be freed upon the mistress's death. Mm-hmm. And so she got to the auction block and they said as they called the auction, Molly walked right up to the front of the auction block and first. Like she skipped the line and went first and stood up there wow. and basically like defiantly and said, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. And the people in the crowd have respected her so much that they knew that they actually called, they actually began to yell, shame, shame, at the guy for trying to sell her. Wow. And so what ended up happening is nobody would bid for her because they knew that she was supposed to be set free. Mm-hmm. And she was so well respected, they were like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do this to this woman, you know, mm-hmm. to Auntie, we're not gonna do this to Auntie. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was a, a very older white woman ended up buying her. Or, you know, buying her at the auction block and just immediately freeing her. Mm, and so wow. that's how Harry Jacobs' grandmother regained her freedom. Okay. And so, unfortunately, her children and her grandchildren were not as fortunate mm-hmm, as her. And mm-hmm. they ended up being sold at the auction block. So, in... Uh, in Harriet Jacobs' uh, narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl... Um, she writes that not too long as she, after she arrived at the Norcom's house, um, the family that she was willed to, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Norcom started harassing her 
like sexually harassing her. Mm. Like she said that the things that she was saying to her are not things that any man should be saying to a 12 year old girl. Mm. And she said it just, it, she said it was just torturous because he want, and basically he would say things, you know, to the effect of, you know, I'm your master. You do what I say, mm-hmm. you know, you, you belong to me. So if I ask you for something, you should just give it to me mm-hmm. along that because he wanted to, to sleep with her. Mm-hmm. And she just, you know, she fought it and she fought it. Um, there was actually a uh, a free black man who she fell in love with and she wanted him to buy her freedom and marry her. But the Norcoms intervened, uh, Norcom intervened and forbade her to continue with the relationship. Mm. So she was looking for some protection from his harassment because mm-hmm. she knew eventually it would turn violent. At least that's what she thought. She thought, you know, eventually, you know, he's not going to ask anymore. It's just going to turn violent. So there was this white lawyer named Samuel Sawyer. She began a relationship with him, hoping that that would protect her from uh, Norcom and Norcom's wife. Because Norcom's wife was jealous of her because of the attention that her husband paid to her. Mm -hmm. And so she began a relationship with this lawyer. Um, They had two children together, uh, only two children. She had Joseph and Luis Matilda. And when Mrs. Norcom saw that Jacobs was pregnant, she assumed it was from her husband Mm. and got so angry, she didn't want her to return to the house anymore, which allowed her to be able to live with her grandmother. Her grandmother stayed in Georgia, you know, in the community as as a a free black person, Mm. uh, stayed in the community because she was so respected. She, she wasn't afraid of being kidnapped again at that point. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to live with her grandmother, um, with her children after, you know, as they were born. But Dr. Norcom would still come by their house and harass her constantly. Yeah, even when she was at her grandmother's house. So Norcom, one of the things that he did um, later on by about 1835, he decided that I know the way to get her. He threatened to expose her children to the harsher realities of slavery, Mm. to sell them down, to sell them further south, or to expose them to some of the, the harder work of slavery. And that was the way that he was going to get back at her or allow her to, you know, to do his bidding. And so she at that point, she said, you know, it's time for me to get out of here. She decided at that point she was going to escape. Um, and so she ran. And there was actually a white woman in their community. Um, her name was never mentioned in Harriet Jacobs biography or in her narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was because Harry Jacobs also changed some of the names that she wrote because she was trying to protect, to protect people. people. Yeah. And so she didn't mention this woman's name, but she was a white woman. She was also a slaveholder herself, mm. but she knew Harry Jacobs' grandmother mm-hmm. and respected her. So she hid Harriet Jacobs at her house, wow. this other slave owner. So she had slaves, <laughs> but then this other slave who she knew her grandmother was like, no, I'll hide you from your enslaver. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of, this is a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, she hid her for a little while. Harry Jacobs, uh, after being hid there for a little while, eventually ran, and she stayed in a swamp uh, near the town for a couple of weeks, just in the swamp, surviving. Wow. And then she finally decided that the best place for her to hide was at her grandmother's house, in the crawl space in the attic. And she wow. stayed there for seven years. Unbelievable. <laughs> So wow. the area that she stayed in was about nine feet by seven feet and three feet high at the highest point. So it was a small area. Mm-hmm. It literally was a crawl space mm-hmm. under the roof of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to 
she had to essentially bore a hole into the wall to get fresh air and enough light for her mm, to read mm, the Bible mm. and sew. Mm, mm, mm. And she would watch her children through the hole. Her children had no clue she was there. She would watch them when they were, whenever they were outside, and she would read her Bible and sew mm. for seven years. Her, her grandmother would bring her food and stuff, but yeah. Wow. And that, when I, I read that and I said, that is just... That's crazy. It's unbelievable. But what are what is the other alternative, right? Yeah. Mm. Yep. Seven years there or seven years in misery at the hand of someone who is going to physically abuse you yeah. until the day that you die. Man. So Dr. Norcom um, reacted to her running away by selling her children. Mm. But wow. because... Uh, just as I read through her uh, her narrative, this this Norcom guy seemed to like just be uh, <laughs> <laughs> he seemed to just be like like at every turn like he just was thwarted at every turn <laughs> right. So he sold her children and her brother John to a slave wow. trader, basically telling the slave trader like if I sell them to you, you got to sell them in a different state. Like he didn't want them in Georgia because he didn't want Harriet if she was still around. He mm-hmm. didn't know where she was mm-hmm. to be able to see them. However, the slave trader also knew her grandmother. <laughs> the slave trader also knew the father of the children, the lawyer, Sawyer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, instead of selling them in another state, he sold them to Sawyer. Okay. And Sawyer took them back to their grandmother's house, grandmother's house and mm-hmm. that's how the kids. And her brother ended up back with their grandmother. Okay. So essentially, the lawyer Sawyer brought his children. Brought his own children and, and his, his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law and then took them to uh, the his, children's... His mother-in-law. Yeah, his mother-in-law. Yeah, for all intents and wow. purposes, mother-in-law. Yep. Wow, wow, wow. Yep. Okay. She actually... In her biography, though, she actually was... Um, she ended up being disappointed at Sawyer because the plan, you know, according to her, was for Sawyer to buy the children and free them. Mm. And to free them and then, you know, let them live with their grandmother, but to free them, he didn't do that. But, you know, we've had this discussion before about how Mm -hmm. sometimes um, we don't know what their thought is, but we've heard that other white um, men in America during that time Mm -hmm. would keep their children, their um, mixed children under slavery, thinking that they would keep them safe. Yeah, it'd be safer than being like kidnapped. It would be safe, yeah, safer than being kidnapped and enslaved under someone else. Yes. So, and maybe that's what Sawyer was thinking, Mm -hmm. but we really don't know. Yes. But, wow. But yeah, but Harriet Jacobs was, uh, now she was frustrated with him because she said, you should have freed them, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, So, Sawyer ended up leaving, uh, you know, the father of her children ended up leaving and getting married Later wow. on, like 1838, because Harry Jacobs was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and the thing, one of the things that I think that made Harry Jacobs so brave and gave her the, you know, we talk about it, gave her the audacity to be like, you know what, I'm out, I'm just leaving. Mm-hmm. Just one day, just pick up and go, mm-hmm. was that she had a uncle who, who escaped slavery. He ended up getting caught. And they brought him back. They put him in jail. They paraded him through the streets in chains like, hey, you know, essentially in front of other enslaved people to say, hey, you know, this is what will happen to you if you if you get caught. Mm -hmm. Um, But and then they sold him down to New Orleans. But then they found out later that he escaped and made it to New York. So he had (laughs) escaped again. And he was like a hero 
to uh, Harriet and John, her brother. Okay. And they actually both named children after him. Like he was a, a hero to them that mm-hmm. he had made it. And mm-hmm. so that always helped them to keep their eyes going. Okay. So um, after being in her grandmother's attic for about seven years, uh, Harriet Jacobs finally got a chance to escape by boat to Philadelphia. And she ended up being aided by uh, anti-slavery activists from the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee. Now, the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, uh, Vigilance Committee was founded by Charlotte Fortin Grimke's mm-hmm. grandfather, James Fortin. Mm. And so she ended up being helped by them. Um in about a year after being in Philadelphia, she heard or she ended up making her way to New York uh, by 1843. So she had been free for a year, mm-hmm. like in the north. She heard that Dr. Norcom was on his way to New York because he heard he finally <laughs> figured out where she was. Mm-hmm. He was coming to get her. Wow. And it was legal for him to do this in the United States. Mm-hmm. You can come and get your, you know, fugitive slaves. So she decided that to go to Boston because Boston at that time, Boston was like really down for the cause. Wow. Boston was so anti-slavery that people mm-hmm. would come. They would not give, you know, they would not give slave masters back. They would show up in crowds and threaten violence against slave catchers. <laughs> like they were, they were really down for the cause. So she was safe in Boston okay. when she got there. And she ended up being a nanny. It was one of the many jobs she had there. She worked for a woman named Cornelia Willis. Mm. And... Cornelia Willis actually took her to England with her and her her infant, you know, because she needed the nanny to come with her to England. So she took her to England and she said that in England um, is where she gained a new access to her Christian faith Mm. because she said the Christian ministers that she all of them that she had interacted with in America, they treated blacks with contempt. They bought and sold slaves themselves. And she said that just had it was just an obstacle to her spiritual life because mm-hmm. she was like, how can these people that say that they're Christians be doing this evil thing? Mm-hmm. But she said that when she got to Britain and saw, you know, slavery was was done in, in England by that time. So mm-hmm. when she got there, you know, it was so different. It's, that just gave her it actually strengthened her faith okay. because she saw that, you know what, maybe those people back there, maybe they ain't Christians. OK, maybe mm-hmm. these are the real ones over mm, here. So that's good. So in February, so they so they were in England for about 10 months. They come back. Uh, Norcom's gone. He couldn't find her. So February 1852. So this is like 10 years after she's been free now. <laughs> she's like living her life. You know, she's in New York living her life. Norcom is dead. Dr. Norcom, the one who had been harassing her, he's dead wow. now. His daughter shows up in New York to come get her. Oh they still my trying to goodness. they still trying to catch her. Like, man, it's been 10 years. Like, <laughs> man, let, the, let her let live her, her life. Let it go. And so she just was like, I she was tired of it, but she was just like, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I know I'm, I'm just gonna have to be on the run for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman she worked for, Cornelia Willis, said, you know what, I'll buy your freedom for you. Mm. And she ended up buying uh Harry Jacobs freedom for three hundred dollars. Now, in her wow. in her narrative, she wrote that she had mixed feelings. She said she had bitterness at the thought that a human being was sold in the free city of New York. Mm. But she was happy that her freedom was secured. And she always expressed a lot of love and gratitude for Cornelia, mm-hmm. or Cornelia Willis. Mm-hmm. So and by so about 10 years later, from that point, 1862 is when Incident in the Life of a Slave Girl was published. And so she wrote under a pseudonym, uh, under the pseudonym of Linda Brent. Mm. And she used that because a lot of the people were still alive at the time mm-hmm. and she didn't want to threaten their safety. Mm-hmm. 
or you know, for helping her escape. Yes, people and who like had that, aided you know. her. Okay. So by 1864, um, in the midst of the Civil War, uh, her and her daughter Matilda went to Alexandria, Virginia, and opened up the Jacob School. Mm. And they, it was a school to help uh, not newly freed blacks in that area to get education, um, to learn a trade, and things like that. Uh, her daughter Matilda was actually trained as an educator. And so she went, Matilda actually ran the school, and Harriet went down there with her just to help. Um, they said a lot of like uh, white missionaries wanted to take control of the school, but they fought to keep it under their control. Mm. And she said that the reason that she fought for the school being controlled by the black community was that she wanted to help the former slaves who had been raised to look upon their the white race as their natural superiors and masters to develop respect for themselves, mm-hmm, develop mm-hmm. respect for their race. Mm-hmm. And so that's why she fought to keep it black run. Which and makes sense. It makes, does make sense. It makes yeah. total sense. It makes um, sense, yeah. We know from history about how um, many... <laughs> Descendants of indigenous Americans, how mm-hmm. when they uh, when the schools were created, right, yep. those schools that were created uh, for the children mm-hmm. of um, indigenous Americans, how um, many of those children were abused, yep. um, miseducated. So they, they were like forced to, to like rename themselves yes. like with so quote Christian names yeah. instead of their uh, native names. Yes. Yeah, so we know how um, many Americans um, have uh, misinterpreted manipulated the word to be able to do that, miseducate um, a group of people of color. Mm-hmm. So I definitely could understand why, how and why, you know, she felt like we need to maintain control of this mm-hmm. um, for these, you know, newly emancipated um, black Americans or yep. Negroes. So just so after they started the school, they ended up going to uh, many different places in the South Literally, they were following behind General Sherman as he made his march to the sea, which is like, you know, as he went on like his total war campaign of the South. One of the Mm. reasons why the South um, uh, surrendered as they did, General Sherman was literally walking through, burning stuff up and his troops were going in the houses, stealing stuff. So like he was Mm. devastating the South. They ripped up the railroad lines Mm -hmm. and Harriet Jacobs and just some of the people in the community, uh, in the black community went down there and they were providing aid and education for the black people who were behind General Sherman's March to the Sea. Mm-hmm, just providing mm-hmm. education for them, setting up different types of uh, communities and mm-hmm. different types of organizations to be able to help them get education and health care and mm-hmm. all types of stuff. Um, so in on March 7th, 1897, Harry Jacobs died in Washington, D.C. Mm. And her tombstone reads, Patient in Tribulation, Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And that's from Romans 12, 11 and 12. Mm. And that's her life. She was paid. I mean, seven years in the attic. I mean, you don't get no more patient. Than oh, that. my gosh. <laughs> Not at all. Yep. And after coming back from England with this newfound, like, like revitalized faith in God, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like she, her, her, the rest of her life was spent serving everybody else, mm-hmm. serving people through education and just she's. Harry Jacobs is a beast. Yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> Again, you know, like we say, get to know her. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, you got to get familiar with Harry. I'm just like we're sure. f- we are familiar with. Um, man, when I when I heard that story, it made me think about um, the girl who was in the attic and who hid, 
during persecution of uh, Jews. Oh, uh, uh, Anne Frank. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we know that story. And Mm -hmm. um, but here, too, is another story of someone who's suffering persecution. Mm -hmm. And that was for her the safest place. Yep. She could see her children, even though they didn't know where she was, mm-hmm. um, but she knew that they were alive, that they were safe. Yep. Um, she leaned in on her faith. I yep. mean, think about what she took with her to that cross space. Yep. She had her Bible. A sewing kit and a Bible. Um, <laughs> and, and a sewing kit. Okay. You know, but just, wow. These yep. are the stories that we need to know. These, This is definitely, wow. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I would like to share um, about someone who... Uh, We may know, um, some of us may know, some of you all may know, but um, who kind of took a, I won't say a backseat, but he he didn't let um, himself really be uh, a light shine on the forefront while he was active and even after Um, he he was active. This person, again, is William Steele. And I like to um, read a passage of scripture um, that he wrote in the first line of um, his book. Thou shall not deliver unto his master the servant that has escaped from his master unto thee. Um, and that is out of um, the book of Deuteronomy, I believe, um, 2316. Um, William Steele was born free in Burlington County, New Jersey in 1821. So we're still in that same kind of time frame uh, to Mr. and Mrs. Levin and um, to uh, Mr. Uh, Mrs. Levin and Sidney Steele. So he was the youngest of 18 children. Um, his father. That's crazy. Yes. Yes. Unbelievable. <laughs> but, you know, not too far fetched, as you know, about my, my uh, great grandparents. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they had 16 children. Ooh. Um, but his father, uh, Levin, was enslaved, uh, but he was able to purchase his own freedom. So, again, we're talking about um, African-Americans who were not um, enslaved, you know, at the turn when we had emancipation, but many of um, whom were able to take the skills that they had mm-hmm. and work out deals where they were able to give proceeds from their profits to their slave masters and then keep some for themselves um, and then being able to purchase their freedom because at the end of the day, it was about that currency and making money. Um, So he was able to purchase his own freedom. He changed his name uh, to Steele. I believe there was a spelling change. So I think initially... The last name was like S-T-E-E-L. He changed it to S-T-I-L-L. Oh, mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, and um, he did that to protect his wife, Sydney. Um, now, Mrs. Still um, had tried to escape uh, once before, but she was um, apprehended. They took her. She had uh, two of her boys with her at the time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, those were only the only two that she could bring, but she was returned back to the South. Mm. Um, and, you know, she still had these children that she had to raise um, on her own. Now, William Steele had, of course, little formal education because um, they were in, um, enslaved at that point. But he was able to study whenever he could, um, very much self-taught. And in 1844, William was able to move to um, Philadelphia. So he's already up north. Um, On Jersey. Yeah. Yes. And um, 
That's not too far, though. Not too, Jerry, not, not too far. far at all. Not too far at all. Um, but, you know, having his father there. And mm-hmm. um, so he was able to find a job as a clerk and a janitor um, for the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. So working um, just kind of in the background, watching yep. the abolitionists do what they do. And then soon he moved up and he began aiding fugitive slaves. And then he would shelter them um, until they could find their way further north. Okay. Um, and so... This went on for years, and he ended up working uh, with conductors, right, quote-unquote conductors of this oh, underground wow, railroad, wow. and including one who we all know, internationally mm-hmm. internationally known, Harriet Tubman. Um, and Black they, Moses. Yes, Black Moses, mm-hmm. um, who um, they helped to safely move those um, blacks from the south, the southern states, to the northern states, and um, even, of course, to Canada or overseas. Wow. Um, even helping, uh, we've, we've heard as we shared these stories of them moving overseas. And he worked with, of, of course, prominent abolitionists who we've shared before, mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass, yep. um, who many of us know, um, know of today. He helped personally move slaves from Philadelphia um, to Canada. And so they would get them on a ferry. Essentially, William still was like that handoff. Okay. Um, in in this underground railroad um, movement, um, he was able to purchase real estate. He opened a store, um, and then he later founded a successful coal business. So this was a self educated businessman, um, an entrepreneur, and entrepreneur, and, and then yes, yeah. and then of course. In secret, he was essentially one of the main veins for the Underground Railroad. Um, many people, many people knew that they had to get to William Steele in order to get to freedom. Mm-hmm. So um, in 1872, he published like his monumental account um, of his work. So all the while, while he was helping people run away, he would get letters in the mail Mm -hmm. from either um, enslaved blacks who could write Mm -hmm. or someone who knew them. And they were mailing William Steele and they were saying, we have a a mother, two kids. We have a father. We have a grandmother. We need them to come to you. Tell us what we need to do. They're coming this way. They're coming that way. We know we've talked about people. People coming through the swamps or coming, you know, um, very and various modes of transportation. But Henry Box Brown. Yes. Henry Box Brown mailed mailed himself himself to William Steele to William Steele. He mailed himself. I have to be free from this Mm -hmm. torment. Um, And it's like, wait a minute, you can die um, in that in that way. And Mm -hmm. we know that others um, tried as well. But yes. So he he collected so many letters and um, there was so much that. He said he never thought that he was going to make a book, right? right. But um, there was something that happened that led him into compiling all of these together um, in, his, in his work. And so the book title is very long, so bear with me. <laughs> it is called The Underground Railroad, A Record of Facts, Authentic, authentic Narratives, Letters, Etc., Narrating the Hardships, Hairbreath Escapes of Death Struggles of the Slaves in Their Efforts for Freedom as Related by themselves and others or witnessed by the author. Mm. The author, of course, is William Steele. <laughs> um, and we talked about it before. These book titles back in the so day. Leave nothing to the imagination. Nothing to this is what you're going to get. So don't exactly say that you weren't warned. This is what you're getting. Um, I'd like to share an excerpt from his uh, his book. 
He says, like millions of my race, my mother and father were born slaves, but were not content to live and die so. My father purchased himself in early manhood by hard toil. Mother saw no way for herself and her children to escape the horrors of bondage, but by flight. Bravely with her four little ones, with firm faith in God and an ardent desire to be free, she forsook the prison house and succeeded through the aid of my father to reach a free state. Here life had to had to be begun anew. The old familiar slave names had to be changed and others for prudential reasons had to be found. This was not hard work. Oh, this was hard work. Excuse me. However, hardly months had passed um, where the scent of the slave masters had trailed them to where they had fancied themselves secure. In those days, all power was in the hands of the oppressor and the capture of a slave mother and her children was attended with no great difficulty other than the crushing of freedom in the breast of the victims. Without judge or jewelry, all were hurried back to wear the yoke again. But back, but back this mother was resolved never to stay. She only wanted another opportunity to again strike for freedom. In a few months after being carried back with only two of her little ones, she took her heart in her hand and her babies in her arms. And this trial was a success. Freedom was gained, although not without the sad loss of her two older children whom she had to leave behind. Now, mother and father were again reunited in freedom uh, while two of their little boys were um, left in slavery. What to do for them other than weep and pray were questions unanswerable. For over 40 years, the mother's heart never knew what it was to be free from anxiety about her lost boys. Mm. But no tidings came in answer to her many prayers until one of them, to the great astonishment of his relatives, turned up in Philadelphia, nearly 50 years of age, seeking his long lost parents. Wow. Being directed by the anti-slavery office for instructions as to the best plan to adopt to find out the whereabouts of his parents. Fortunately, he fell into the hands of his own brother, the writer whom he had never heard of before, much less seen or known. And here began revelations connected with this marvelous coincidence, which influenced me for years previous to emancipation to preserve the matter found in the pages of this humble volume. And in looking back now over this, these strange and eventful providences in the light of the wonderful changes wrought by emancipation, I am more and more constrained to believe that the reasons which years ago led me to aid the bondman and preserve the records of his suffering are today quite as potent and convincing me that the necessity of times requires this testimony. Wow. Oh my goodness. Heavy, heavy, heavy. So his brother, his older brother Mm -hmm. who had been left in slavery Mm -hmm. finally finally escaped. (laughs) 50 years old. 50 years old. Mm -hmm. Gets to Philadelphia. Hey man, I need to find my parents. I'm trying to find them. them. Hey, go to the, uh, go see William Steele at the office. Yes. William Steele like, what's your name? Mm -hmm. Hey bro, you might be my brother. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And, that and I never met before. When I read the story, crazy. the account William still 
was writing like he was writing doing what he does he he's mm-hmm. writing back to all of these people who are saying help us help us mm-hmm. and William still said he looked at him he actually sent the person who walked him over to to William still's office he sent him out mm-hmm. because he knew William still knew this is my brother it made me think about Joseph I know who this mm-hmm. person is yeah and he sent he, he sent them out. out. Yep. He sent everybody out. There was another person. He sent them out and he looked at him and he told him, you are my brother. Wow. Wow. And so like he talked about providence, like this is why I was here. Yep. This is why I was here. Mm. Um, and still was able to preserve the records of um, thousands. They said at least a thousand fugitives that he had aided in his time at the anti-slavery society. Wow. And his book is 800 pages long and it recounts the stories of the hundreds of fugitive slaves that he helped on their way north to escape slavery Um, and when he died in 1902 he was one of the most famous and respected black men in america newspapers across the country they called him the father of the underground railroad we need to know this man, yeah. William Steele, yep. the father of the Underground Railroad, Absolutely. is right here. And, and it was a believer mm-hmm. and used that fuel. The very first sentence in his 800 page book is from De- Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. God led him. He talked yep. about his mother's faith. He saw that faith, mm-hmm. that undying faith. Yep. And then we're talking about before we talked about St. Monica mm-hmm. praying without ceasing. Yeah. And being able to to get some of your children back mm. um, is just, you know, marvelous. Like William still said, marvelous. So, yes, a wonderful story. And I yeah. hope that um, if if some of us don't know, some of y'all don't know who he is, that you know him now. Yeah. 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 Most of what we know about the Underground Railroad is because of William Steele. Yes. Like because of what the notes that he yeah. kept, the letters that he kept, all of the information. And he was a very humble yeah. person. Yeah. And I, and I I know that you said the book is long. Yeah. I would recommend to everyone oh. read the record of the Underground Railroad. It's Every amazing. Page. Some of the stories are just are insane. Some of them are just some of them are just uh, mundane stories like mm-hmm. yo I escape. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. a lot of them are just some of the craziest things that you've ever heard. Like wow that you wouldn't believe in their pictures yep. so we're thinking about oh they weren't taking pictures and this yep. is such a long time ago but there are images there are pictures of these mm-hmm. people there just to be able to go and, and even um take it you really won't have to paint a picture of mm-hmm. these people who were who were working together so people like to talk about oh well you know they were slave owners or they didn't know they were just following the law there were many white brothers and sisters who mm-hmm. were down for the cause and they were um letting folks know oh you know that you're like some of those stories you know you're in philly you know you're here you know you're free right yep. are you you're sitting on this train car with your master but you know you're free right get up let's go like yep. those stories that were happening yep. um were just amazing amazing stories and the book is free it's in the public domain you can go and google it and um, read the book or read just a couple accounts and see the images it's just amazing absolutely amazing well we want to thank you for joining us on this episode and like we said get familiar Mm -hmm. with Harriet Jacobs and William William Steele and we hope you join us next time and we got a couple more people to bring to you and keep that pen and that paper close by yes All right. bye